I asked her to pray for me. Very well done. <laughs> uh, sisters, welcome. Welcome back. It's been so long. I, we've missed you. Um, I hope that you're excited to be here today. I know I am. If you haven't already done what's on the slide on the board, if you will take 30 seconds right now and find a sister next to you and answer that question. What was your favorite talk at General Conference or, or one of your favorites and why? So take 30 seconds each and discuss that. All right, switch if you haven't. Awesome. I thought it was a beautiful conference. Um, session after session, I thought, wow, that was an amazing session. That one's going to be the best. And then the next one would come along. I was like, whoa, that one's going to be the best. Um, so I just loved conference. Um, phone. Um, I thought of this class more than once during conference, but particularly perhaps when Joy D. Jones, the new primary general president, spoke about spiritually inoculating your children, about being able to teach them strongly in, their, in your homes so that when they go out into a wicked world, they are prepared for the things, the onslaught that will come against them. I thought about that as we have talked um, this, this semester or this year, I, Teach Institute, like you know, so I think in semesters. Um, I thought about that as, um, as we prepared the curriculum for this year. We talked about that idea. We talked about the idea of approaching the doctrines of the restoration and the history of the church from a, from a perspective of faith so that we could talk to our children about things that are being thrown at them by the media or by friends or, or social media. We could talk about the fact that there are several accounts of the first vision. Talk about the fact that Joseph used a seer stone. Talk about some of the doctrines of the kingdom that initially took a little bit of getting used to for the saints. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk about those things was so that you, as grandmothers and mothers in Zion, could spiritually inoculate your children to teach them from a perspective of faith the beautiful doctrines that these are and the wonderful wealth of, of information we have through the restoration today. I hope that you are taking that to heart and that in some small way that this class is helping you to prepare yourselves to do what Joy D. Jones asked us, which is to inoculate our children and our grandchildren. Um, I have a unique perspective at General Conference. I have won the very best seats in the house. Um, and one of, just one little thing from conference, um, that from my perspective, so I, as many, some of you may know, I sing in the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. 
And um, it's interesting every every conference to hear the music that is selected. I know just a little bit of the music selection process. The music is selected not by the Brethren, but by Mac Wilberk and Ryan Murphy, and then submitted to them for their approval. There is some level of coordination that goes on since the list is submitted, and then President Nelson, I believe it is, but the Brethren will go through and, and make changes if they feel they are needed. Um, and of course, the talks are assigned. Um, to different brethren at different, uh, for different sessions of conference. But it always amazes me to see how well the Lord is able to coordinate those things when there has not been full and overt coordination. When the brethren choose their own topics for their talks, and then Elder Mark Bragg can talk about um, light and the importance of light, and the very next song the choir sings is Teach Me to Walk in the Light. How Elder Holland can give an entire beautiful talk on the idea um, coming from there is sunshine in my soul today. And the very next morning, that was the keynote song sung by the choir during music and the spoken word. It was just, it, and it happened time after time after time. And I love those little miracles. I wanted to share with you from that perspective, just what a miraculous meeting that is General Conference. Um, so, unfortunately, moving on from general conferences, I would love to have more time like I do in my institute classes to, to discuss it and to, to hear. Um, but we will move on for today because we are talking about eternal marriage. And we're going to start with this. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. Stand your ground, men. Stand your ground. Then love, true love. Oh, no, where'd it go? Uh, so treasure your wife. Skip to the end. Have you the wind? Man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. Awesome. As much as we'd like to watch that again, we will not. Um, hopefully that's a classic for you, as it is for me. Um, I love that clip of that movie, one of the best clips of that entire movie, and that is saying something, because that is a great movie. Um, I love the marriage, love, true love. And in relationship to this class today, the line that stuck out to me was actually when the prince, the angry prince, yells, skip to the end. Sisters, our point in this lesson today is that in marriage, there is no end. And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, we can actually do the lights for a little bit. I don't think we should. Can we, we can turn up the lights for a little bit. Um, I do recognize, of course, the irony of this event today that I, the single girl, one of the very few single girls in this room, if not the only, is teaching to a group of married or formerly married, perhaps you're widowed or otherwise, women about marriage. This is only compared in my life, comparable in my life to the time that I inadvertently taught elders quorum. I was, I was sent in to give a, a short announcement. 20 minutes later, I was talking about the Old Testament. <laughs> so. Um, but I hope that, this still, that we can still learn something today, that this can still be an edifying thing despite the blind leading the not-so-blind. 
on this very, very important of subjects. Uh, my purpose today is several fold. Number one, that we may reinstate um, the divinity of motherhood and of being wives and mothers in Zion, that we can understand God's view of eternal marriage and what, just why it is so essential and how it ties us into him and to him, into his divine mission. We're talking about this, of course, so we'll check in at the end and make sure that we achieve those purposes. I invite you to be listening for those things. The divinity of marriage and of motherhood. How, why it is essential, the doctrine of eternal marriage, and how it ties us into God and into his eternal purposes. Um, we, of course, are teaching this class in context of the restoration and specifically today, the restoration of the doctrine of eternal marriage. Over the past few weeks, we've of course been spending our time in Nauvoo. We went Ohio, Missouri, and then Nauvoo. The saints build their beautiful city, or their city beautiful, as it was called. As we heard from Rosemary a few weeks ago, we, there were many beautiful doctrinal revelations that occurred during the Nauvoo period. She taught us about the endowment and the divine nature of man as son or daughter of God. We heard then from Jill Durr about the restoration or the organization of the Relief Society. And then two weeks ago, before our break, a beautiful lesson by Sister Holler, Cynthia, on Emma and her role in the restoration at large and in that recently restored Relief Society. This week, we're going on with another doctrine restored during that Nauvoo period, eternal marriage. And next week, Rosemary is up again. And we'll be talking about a related doctrine restored during the Nauvoo period, that of plural marriage. So hold on to your horses, kids. It's going to be a good ride. Um, as was mentioned in one of these lessons, but I wanted to quickly restate today, during the Nauvoo period, Joseph's revelations um, didn't come as often as formal revelations as they had during the early years of the Restoration. Instead, they started to come through his journals, through sermons that he gave. The King Follett Discourse is a great example. Um, so out of revelations and context as put forth by the church. He said, during this time in Nauvoo, um, Joseph did not deliver these teachings as formal revelations the way he had often earlier in his ministry, but William Clayton, his secretary, hung on every word. He recorded the prophet's sayings in his own diary or in the journal he kept for Joseph. I want one of those. And these entries were later used as the basis for several sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, so the story, so DNC 131 and 132 are that same type of revelation in that they were, they were received in context of other events that were going on. For DNC 131, on April 2nd, 1843, Joseph visited a state conference in Ramos, Illinois, 20 miles east of Nauvoo. And throughout the events of those couple of days, uh, several revelations came forth. Um, it says here, Doctrine and Covenants 131 is composed largely of several short journal entries kept by William during May 1843. Among these were teachings regarding eternal marriage given in Ramus at the home of Benjamin and Melissa Johnson on May 16th. And again, he was there for a couple of days. And so in DNC 131, though we see it today as a set of verses, they were actually different events during over the course of a couple of days that were then put together into one section. Um, so the first four verses that talk about the doctrine we're discussing today, eternal marriage, were given to in the home of ben Benjamin and Melissa Johnson. It says that Johnson had, Johnson's had been married since Christmas Day, 1841, but Joseph told them he intended to marry them according to the law of the Lord. Benjamin joked 
jokingly said he would not marry Melissa again unless she courted him. But Joseph was in earnest. He taught that men and women needed to enter into the new and everlasting covenant of marriage in order to obtain God's highest blessings. He then sealed Benjamin and Melissa for eternity. That is where the revelation of eternal marriage is first seen in um, the story of the restoration. Um, when Joseph knew it for sure, I suppose we do not know, but that's the first time that we have it recorded. Um, there's another beautiful story that goes with the revelation of um, DNC 132 that involves Mary and Hiram Smith and Mary's sister, Mercy, and her deceased husband, Robert Thompson. But I will leave that um, for next week because DNC 132 is also on the docket then. Um, we're just doing the first half in this lesson. So this doctrine of eternal marriage revealed there and recorded in DNC 131 was a huge um, revelation for the saints. We've talked about a few revelations that came forth during the restoration that tried the saints' faith perhaps a little bit, or at least at first struck them as a little bit strange and they had to get comfortable with it. The vision of the three degrees of glory, we talked about that. What That one was one, it took them a little while to, wa to warm up to that, coming from a very different background theologically. Um, obviously, plural marriage, we'll learn next week, that there were definitely some strong reactions to that. Um, but there were other doctrines that the saints just loved from the first moment. Um, redeeming the dead was, seemed to be one of them, and this seemed to be another. In fact, taking from that story of Mary and Mercy and Hiram Smith, um, after Mercy was sealed to her husband, Robert Thompson for eternity in this eternal marriage. Her quote was this, some may think I could envy Queen Victoria in some of her glory, not while my name stands first on the list in this dispensation of women sealed to a dead husband through divine revelation. They were ecstatic. Parley P. Pratt felt the same. He said, it was Joseph Smith who taught me how to prize the endearing relationships of father and mother, husband and wife, of brother and sister, son and daughter. It was from him that I learned that the wife of my bosom might be secured to me for time and all eternity. And that ref the refined sympathies and affections which endeared us to each other emanated from the fountain of divine eternal love. I had loved before, but I knew not why. Beautiful line. But now I loved with a pureness, an intensity of elevated, exalted feeling, which would lift my soul from the transitory things of this groveling sphere and expand it as the ocean. In short, I could now love with a spirit and with understanding also. I love that line. I had loved before, but I knew not why. And he said that when Joseph merely lifted a corner of the veil and gave him a single glance into eternity, he then understood what love really meant, why he loved so deeply, and that that beautiful, deep love could then last into eternity. This was a beautiful doctrine and was received joyously by the saints in his day. Um, let's turn to the actual doctrine, um, the actual scriptures, revelations on this doctrine. If you'll turn with me to DNC 131, and we'll look at that, and then we'll look at DNC 132. I can't tell you how many people, when they heard I was teaching a lesson on eternal marriage, wanted to tell me, were, were like, A, that's really funny, and B, they all had something to tell me. <laughs> it's like opening the floodgates. Um, 
So DNC 131, that was a total aside. In DNC 131, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, if you'll read with me. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees, and in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood. Parenthetical, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. That parenthetical was actually added by Orson Pratt under the direction of Brigham Young when this section was officially added to the Doctrine and Covenants. It's clarifying what was meant in this particular verse by that order of the priesthood, which is an interesting way, by the way, to describe marriage. Um, I'll let you, but we'll, we'll pass on that for today. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, kingdom or place, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. If this, I've, I've thought about of, as a single girl, I'm just going to mention that incessantly today, so let's just be comfortable with that, because I am. Um, not that comfortable with it, but what do you do? Um, I've thought about this a lot, this, this, these particular verses, of course, um, and I, I thought that if this were a social policy in our day, like, if you are married, if you are not married, you can't go into this room, or if you are married, you can't go past this place. There would be incessant cries of discrimination, would there not? Discrimination against all single people. What do you mean I can't be exalted? That is discrimination. Is it discrimination? I might. Well, let's look. The answer to that question of why why can't I reach the highest level of celestial kingdom if I am not in that order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage? The answer to why, I believe, at least in part, is in the next section. So if you'll turn with me to DNC 132, we're going to start in verse 5. And we're going to go straight through a bunch of this. So um, you'll want to be in your scriptures. Verses 5 and 6, he says he's going to reveal a new and everlasting covenant. And that if you abide not that covenant, you are damned, or that you cannot progress, right? The meaning of damned. For no one can reject this and enter into my glory. For if you will have a blessing at my hands, you shall abide the law on which it is predicated, to borrow from DNC 130. If you want the blessing by exaltation, you have to live this law. If you choose not to, you can't progress. That's verses 5 and 6. And then verse 7, we talked about this another week, but we're going to look at it again. You Follow with me. And verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law that you have to follow are these, that all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not, one, made, or, yeah, one, made, entered, two, entered into, and three, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise by him who is anointed, who, by him who has authority, skipping to near the end of the verse, are of no efficacy, virtue, or force in and after the resurrection from the dead for all contracts that have not been made unto this end have an end when men are dead. Do you see what he's saying in verse 7? Verse 7 is crucial to the idea of eternal marriage. All contracts, bonds, vows, obligations, associations, any of those connections that are not one made, two entered into, and three sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise are not efficacious after this life. Um, we talked about it before, so I'm not going to dwell on it too much because we do want to talk about other things today. But I want you to invite you to think about what does it mean Made, when he says made, entered into, and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. What does he mean by that? This quote um, from the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. Some members of the church mistakenly believe that the marriage in the temple fulfills the requirements of the covenant. But marriage in the temple does not. 
to gain exaltation after celestial marriage, it is necessary to continue the same devotion and righteousness. Or rather, that being made is the day that you kneel at an altar with your spouse and, and, and make that covenant. I define enter into as, the mo as that step that's, well, then the third, the third, being sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, is when, as we talked about, the Holy Ghost, who is the Holy Spirit of promise, ratifies or seals that covenant made that day when you knelt at an altar. He seals it with a ratifying stamp and says, for all eternity, this is now valid. And he does that because he says the, the, the two parts of that covenant, the covenant has been kept. They have kept their end of the deal, and I now stamp it ratified. And that makes entered into that process of living the covenant. That you have to not only make it on one day, but then you have to live it for a lifetime until the Holy Spirit of promise ratifies it or seals it or marks it good in the eyes of God for all eternity. We have to make it, but we have to, and much harder, we have to enter into it. We have to live it until it is sealed. It is true, as the verse says, with all of our covenants, that is true. Any bond, any covenant, any association, any connection, any vow, any performance has to be made the day we are baptized, entered into. We live it for a lifetime until the Holy Spirit of promise seals it or ratifies it. And that makes it efficacious, virtuous, and of force in and after the resurrection. Does that make sense? I invite you to think about your own covenants and obligations your own commitments, whatever they may be, marriage, otherwise, and how, how you are doing and how I am doing on entering into them so that they may be sealed in the future day by the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay. Going on from there, verses 7 through 14 are, um, including the verse that we just looked at, are a discussion about the idea that all of these things, marriage specifically, but any of these ordinances and covenants, must be done by God's authority in order to be valid. You see in verse 8, mine house is a house of order. Verse 9, will I accept an offering that is not made in my name? Verse um, 11, no man shall come unto the Father but by me or by my, but by me or by my word. And going on, um, verse 13, that Anything that is not done by him, that is done by the world, even if it's done by thrones or principalities or powers or things of names or kings or presidents or whoever it may be, whoever it may be, unless it is done by God, that it shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection. For whatsoever things remain are by me, and whatever things, whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. Verses 15, so things must be gone, done by God's power. Anything done by man's authority will not suffice and will have an end at death and uh, must be done by his word. Verses 15 through 20 are three case studies or examples that build upon this idea. God is now, has taught the principle. Now he's saying, let me show you a few examples, okay? Verses 15 through 17 are example one, marriage for time only. Verse 15, if a man marry him a wife in the world and he marry, me, marry her not by me nor by my word, and he covenant with her so long as he's in the world and she with him, 
Their covenant and marriage are not a force when they are dead. And when they're out of the world, they are not bound to each other. This is our typical till death do us part. A man takes a wife knowing that he is doing it just for this life, just by mortal authority. It says in verses 16 and 17 that the result of this example or case study is that they will be angels in heaven. They will be ministering servants to others who are um, deserving of a weightier glory because they did not abide that law, going back to verses five and six. They cannot be enlarged. They will live sing separately and singly without exaltation, but in their saved condition. They are not gods, but angels. Again, 15 through 17, our first case study. Verse 18, case study two. And verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife and make a covenant with her for time and for all eternity, okay, this is getting better, right? First one was just like, we just know it's for this life and we're done. The next one, we're like, no, we time and eternity, but if that covenant is not by me or by my word, which is my law, and not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, as we just discussed, through him whom I have anointed and appointed unto this power, then it is not valid, neither of force when they are out of the world, because they are not joined by me, saith the Lord. Case study two, we intend and want this marriage to be for both time and eternity, but it is either not performed by God's authority, so not by his law, not by his word, not of him, or it is not lived, and so thus not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And the conditions or the results there are the same. It is not valid or a force out of the world because they were not joined by God. They cannot pass by the angels and gods appointed that should sound familiar. And they cannot inherit God's glory. For my house is a house of order, saith the Lord. Well, this is a sad set of case studies. Saved only, of course, by case study number three. Verses 19 and 20. And again, verily I say unto you, and I am going to read most of these verses because I think they are beautiful. So if you will listen for that beauty. Again, verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word, which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant, and it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, it's sealed, by him who is anointed, unto whom I have appointed this power in the kings of the priesthood, and it shall be said of, unto them, ye shall come forth in the resurrection, skipping, and shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths. Then it shall be written in the Lamb's book of life, that he shall commit no murder, and there's a caveat, if you commit murder or deny the Holy Ghost, then things can change. But skipping down again, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant hath put upon them, in time and throughout all eternity, and shall be a full force when they are out of the world, and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to the exaltation and glory in all things, as has been sealed upon their heads, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever and ever. Then they shall be gods, because they have no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting, because they continue. Then shall they be above all, because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods, because they have all power, and the angels are subject unto them. And then in 21, he returns to the prior theme. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye abide my law, ye cannot attain to this glory. 
Verses 22 through 29, which I think is the end of the reading for today, we're not going to go through in detail, but just by way of summary, they talk about the idea that narrow is the gate, um, narrow is the way and straight is the gate. Did I get those backwards? I think I did. Um, that leads to eternal life, or, or, or to, in this case, eternal lives, and broad is the gate and wide is the way that leads to death. Um, there's a caveats, as I mentioned, about murder or denying the Holy Ghost, and um, some discussion as we lead into the idea of plural marriage on Abraham. Um, and we might come back to that if we have time. I wanted to look, if we'll turn back to verses 20, 19 and 20, I want to look at that and point out a few things that will hopefully help answer the question I posed before about DNC 131, about why is it discrimination that somebody who is not married by the new and everlasting covenant of marriage cannot achieve exaltation. So let's see if we can see anything here that relates to that. Looking at the last, oh, say five or six lines of verse 19, there's an interesting definition um, of exaltation and glory. So it says, they shall pass by the angels and the gods, which are set there, temple text, to their exaltation and glory in all things as hath been sealed by that Holy Spirit promise upon their heads. Now this is the part, which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of the seeds forever. Do you see how he just defined exaltation and glory? He defined it as a fullness and as a continuation of seeds forever and ever. Watch for those now, those two ideas in verse 20. Then shall they be gods because they have no end. So that's one piece of what God is, has no end. Therefore they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue. Then they shall be above all because all things are subject unto them. They shall be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. I would submit to you sisters that exaltation is tied up in the idea of a fullness of power and the continuation of seed, as it says at the end of verse 19. And that perhaps, it lead, well, that leads to that idea of having no end, of being from everlasting and ever, to everlasting and continuing, continuation of seed. It also ties to the idea of having all things subject unto them, having all power, a fullness of power. If we were take element, exaltation to mean a fullness, God's fullness, power and virtue and, and all that he is, and a continuation of seed, that might explain why in DNC 131, God doesn't use shall not when he talks about the future options of those who do not marry in the everlasting covenant of marriage, but rather he uses the word cannot. Verse 3, and if he does not, he cannot obtain it. Verse 4, he cannot have an increase. It is by no accident that our Heavenly Father has chosen the role Father as his primary title. Because the idea of exaltation, the job description of God, his work and his glory, is to have seed and to exalt them so that they continue forever. The idea of seed and posterity is instricably connected to the job title and the responsibility and the function and the definition of what makes God God. 
and what is exaltation. And that is why he says cannot, not because he doesn't love me. Now, if you want me to cry at a lesson, this is a really good one to pick. Not because he doesn't love me, but simply it is against the nature of the end that you are seeking. Because the idea of godhood is tied up in the idea of fatherhood and of motherhood. Because God himself, by nature, is exalted man and woman. And their one function in eternity, their entire purpose and work and glory, is to help exalt their children. So thus, without that other half, they simply cannot enter into that glory. They simply cannot have an increase. How will you do that alone? It is... Um, it, it can sound harsh. It sounds a little bit like in First Nephi 10 when God says, um, if you're filthy, you cannot enter, enter into my presence. It's like, well, don't you love me? Don't you want me? Of course. Of course God loves us, but he wants us to become like him. He is not casting people out. He is simply defining and explaining what he is and what we need to do to become like him. That is all it is. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he talks about happiness, that God invented us, and that we sometimes mistakenly believe that we can get happiness in another way that doesn't have to do with God. But he says, no, that's not going to work. That's just not the nature of happiness, nor is it the nature of God, nor is it the nature of you. You cannot have happiness apart from God because it isn't there. And I think God here is saying the same thing. You cannot have exaltation apart from this marriage covenant because it is simply not the nature of what exaltation is. Um, and perhaps that is why President Nelson said, quote, salvation is an individual matter. Exaltation is a family matter. Because family is exaltation. That is probably the best way to say it. Family is exaltation. And thus we must do it together. And God wants it desperately for all of us. But he can't change the nature of what exaltation is. Well, now we talked about that. That was, that was a lot. Um, so that's it. some of the doctrines of eternal marriage taught in D&C 131 and 132. Well, I've dwelt perhaps a little bit in order to teach the idea of exaltation on the constraining piece of it. I want to testify of the enlarging and ennobling side of it, that God's purpose is to make us like him, that he is exalted man and woman, and that that exaltation, which is family, and a continuation of seed and a fullness forever can be ours because of the doctrines restored by Joseph Smith, because of the sealing powers that were brought back by Elijah in the Kirtland Temple. And as we make, enter into, and have our covenants sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, you can have that reward. I can have that reward. I wanted to spend the last little bit, unless there's mutiny, anybody feeling mutiny? Because Okay, um, I wanted to spend the last bit, little bit, and we could do the lights again, um, talking about this doctrine then of eternal marriage. We've looked a little bit at DNC 131, the idea that eternal marriage is essential, and it's essential because, again, exaltation is family. It is continuation of seed. We looked at DNC 132, that we have to abide this law in order to progress, that not only do we have to enter into it, we have to, or make it, we have to enter into it, live it, and have it sealed. But if we do that, the, all the blessings of DNC 132, 19 and 20 will be ours. Continuation, fullness, passed by the gods.
all that the Father hath. I want to talk now a little bit about some of the other doctrines of, of marriage that are taught throughout the scriptures, and specifically, I want to focus on the story of Adam and Eve. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Um, while you're doing that, actually, one other thing I wanted to share. Um, as I mentioned, the states were ecstatic about this doctrine that was taught. Um, they, Harley P. Pratt, who I read his quote, was just overjoyed at this prospect that he could be with his wife, the love of his bosom, forever. Um, this doctrine really changed or added to the previous doctrines that Joseph had revealed. Um, when it, we first started, the first part of the, the, the dec, the, this decade of the church being set up from 1830 to the early 1840s, the church structure had really focused on cities, not so much on parishes or congregations, but rather on cities. First on the gathering to Kirtland, then on the gathering to Zion, and now we're going to gather to Nauvoo. So we had this idea of cities, and they were governed by councils. The Quorum of the Twelve, later the Seventy are added, the First Presidency. With some of the revelations that came forth on priesthood, the shift focused a little bit to add an idea of lineage. We had the idea of sons of Aaron that could be bishops, and that priesthood would pa was passed often father to son. So we moved from this idea of cities, and then we add this idea of lineage. With the revelations that we're discussing here, both the revelation of redemption of the dead, which is a family-oriented doctrine, the revelation of eternal family, and then plural marriage, when we get there next week, the shift really became to, came to the family. The family became the preeminent organization in the structure of both society and in the gospel. Um, written from Rough Stone Rolling, in Nauvoo, the family side of priesthood came forward. Bonding families became the center of Joseph's doctrine. Um, the earth would be wasted if families were not bound together across the, the generations. Family did not displace councils in early church government, but family was identified as the fundamental governing body, governing body in the hereafter. After death, husbands and wives, as kings and queens, would rule over principalities and powers. With these revelations of these doctrines, the family became center. We align with that today when we read in the proclamation to the world on the family that, quote, the family is ordained of God. And in DNC 49, that marriage is ordained of God, that they are central to the creator's plan for the eternal destinies of his children, that gender is an, is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose. That the roles of father and mother, husband and wife, are divinely decreed and de divinely designated, as we'll look at today. Um, that, and that's the reason that Satan perhaps so aggressively attacks the family in a multitude of ways today. He attacks it through the roles of gender. He attacks it through the necessity of the, order, of, the, of the institution at all. He attacks it through our fallen natures. I love to quote that I read by President Nelson that said, well, there are two immediate handicaps built into every marriage. The fact that two people that just got married are both imperfect. And Satan loves to play upon that imperfect part of our natures and try to drive a wedge into marriage. Because the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destinies of his children, it is also the primary target for Satan's attack in these latter days. It is Satan's primary goal to take away our identity as children of God and to take away our families. As you can hear. Um, I want to... Let us remember that the family is the central unit, that nothing else is more important than the family. 
that God is focused on the family, that exaltation is tied up in the idea of family. And let us not let Satan attack um, through, and, and be wary, be aware of his attacks as he attacks desperately the family today. Okay, moving on to Genesis. I wanna make sure we had the family firmly enthroned as that central unit of eternity. In Genesis 2, we're gonna look, of course, we have the creation happening in chapter one. Chapter two, the creation is completed. Um, The seventh day is blessed. Man is given life in verse seven. Eden is planted. And we're gonna go on to verse 18. Um, Let me say, as we enter this section of the lesson, Um, that those who have been through the temple, if you will keep your eyes and your ears open. I spent a a few weeks ago, I went to the temple with the question of what does the temple teach about eternal marriage? And I was surprised to see how many things it teaches in in all, in different, various ordinances about marriage. I invite you to keep your temple ears open and look for those principles as we talk about it today. In verse 18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Amen. I would like to say that to many single men in the church today. I will make him and help meet for him. With some of you have, have heard this, perhaps, and in fact, it was even asked as a question to, to Jill Durr the other day. But the Hebrew definition for that word help meet, the help meet when you first read it, especially as a child, you're like, what in the world does that mean, right? It doesn't mean anything to you. And then you just get used to the phrase and you just use it because you know it's used in that scripture. But what does it really mean? Well, as we heard a couple weeks ago in the question that was asked, it comes from a Hebrew term, ezer konegdo. You can see the Hebrew for it there. Ezer is, is a word that simply means what the King James translators did a great job there. It means help, assistance, or aid. Konegdo is a more difficult word to translate from Hebrew. Um, I read several translations in preparing for this lesson. Opposite or corresponding, suitable, meet, or even the word against. Now, not against as in I'm against you and I'm going to do, you know, not in that sense, but rather the idea of opposite or against. Um, one of my favorite personal religion professors that I had while um, in college age is Bruce Satterfield, and he taught it this way. The sense of the phrase Ezer Konegdo is an equal but opposite helper to him. For example, my left hand is the Ezer Konegdo of my right hand. Both hands look alike, except they are exactly opposite. Both hands are equal but opposite. That is so that they might work better together. Imagine trying to pick up a shovel with two hands that are positioned the same. If you had two right hands, how well would shoveling go? Again, the Ezer Knigdo of the right wing on an airplane is the left wing. They look exactly the same, except they are opposite each other. Both wings are equal, but opposite. That is so the airplane can fly. One wing is not more important than the other. The same is true with man and woman. Man's Ezer Konegdo is woman. Both are equal but opposite. It requires both to fulfill the role of, of parenthood. I love that idea. They are not the same, they are, but they are equal. They are meet. They are corresponding, and they help each other. That is what Eve was designed to be. If they were the same, 
they would not be useful. I have a um, four yards, this house I bought a few years ago that put me in the stake, which is a great idea, except for I have four yards, and they're all landscaped, and I have no idea what I'm doing. So the first years, I was like crying because of my yard. I've since gotten a little bit better, but if we could have a commercial break, if any of you have children or, I mean, teenagers that need jobs, if you will send them my way, I'm being eaten alive by my yard. Yards. Um, but the other day, as I was, you know, and this lesson's been in the back of my mind for a few weeks, I was in my garage going to go do some yard work, as I am wont to do, and I picked up, I have a huge pile of gloves, I go through them like crazy, and I picked up two gloves that look the same, same color, right, and I started to put them on, and as you will see, that didn't work so well, because they're the same hand. And I, and I was like, oh, golly, and I had to go find the other glove, and I found it, and everything worked out just fine, but I thought about how fitting that was, <laughs> not fitting, actually, but fitting that was because of this lesson. I don't need two right-hand gloves any more than I need two right hands, any more than God needs two identical people. He needs us to be equal but different. He needs us to be corresponding to, as our hands do, to fill in each other's gaps so that we can do more than we could do if we were the same. Um, this is true in Joseph and Emma. I love the lesson that Cynthia gave a few weeks ago on Emma. I love the quote by Lucy about Emma. Now, we hear a lot about Joseph and all he went through and all he did, and, and it is amazing. And I love that Lucy gave that same tribute, that same strength, that same oneness and, and, and corresponding to-ness to Emma when she said, I have never seen a woman in my life who would endure, endure every species of fatigue and hardship from month to month and year to year with that unflinching zeal and patience, whichever she has done that she has been buffeted by the rage of men and devils, which would have borne down almost any other woman. Truly, Emma was a fitting or corresponding or suitable helpmeet to Joseph. Not identical. Each had their own personalities, their own struggles, but they were suiting, suited and corresponding. Um, Jewish tradition talks about the fact that in this same chapter, we read that, jo that the woman was created from Abraham, <laughs> Adam's rib. That she was not created from his head to lord over him, nor from his heel to be under his feet, but from his rib, so that she is by his side, under his arm, and close to his heart. I love that. They are meant to be equal partners, but different, to fill different roles. Um, in this idea of being helpmeets, equal and corresponding, are the two powers, they are given the twin powers, priesthood, or the authority to preside, and procreation. I want you to take a few seconds, 30 seconds, and with a neighbor discuss this question. I think we spent a lot of time in the social square debating how these things and how men and women are different, how priesthood and procreation are different. I want us to focus today on how they are the same. Will you take a minute and discuss this question?
Okay, I know you haven't had very long. Apologize for my horrific time management skills in teaching. But we'd like a comment or two. Does anyone have a comment on how these two things are similar? We have the mics. She is ready. We have two mics. Any hands right here in the middle? Mike. There we go. Come together like marriage. I happened to read an article just the other day that drew an analogy that I had never heard and I thought was interesting. They said, she said, in the garden there were two trees, the tree of knowledge and the tree of eternal life. And in the garden there were two people, Adam and Eve. And then she said, um, Eve, by taking, partaking of the tree of uh, knowledge, gave Adam and Eve the power to bring children to the earth. And um, mothers do that and forward the plan of God through that. Through the priesthood, the um, ordinances of salvation are um, brought to all men to bring us eternal life. So the two work together to make this earth life, make, make it possible for us to return to God. And they, have to, they were both required and needed and essential, and they work together, and they're both e essential. Yeah, thank you. I love that. So one gives life, the other gives spiritual life. And they do work together. There's also a great symbolism that's going on with those same two trees in that, and Adam and Eve that involves not man and woman, but rather the church and Christ. And the different, the fall and the atonement that are also coming together in that same symbol. But I love that comment. That one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or rather in Eve's role, brought physical life. But that through the priesthood, we are able to then have spiritual rebirth or spiritual life. Another comment, thank you. Here in the back. Oh, who's gonna get there first? Who's gonna get there first? <laughs> I, I think that when you talk about the powers of the priesthood and procreation, you have to have a man and a woman to procreate. You have to have a man and a woman for the priesthood to be exercised fully. They may hold it, they may be ordained to it, but they can't exercise it fully without our support and our help and our doing part of the work. Yeah, thank you. I, we're, and we're going to talk about that, just that. Both have and participate in both powers. Let me say that again. Both have and participate in the same powers, in both powers. Um, if you look, Elder Oaks gave a great talk when he talks about when women work in the church, when they are Relief Society presidents or whatever their calling may be, when they are sister missionaries, by what authority are they doing those callings? It is priesthood authority, of course. That they work under those who have keys. That the men, that the men have those priesthood keys. But that the women are holding and using that priesthood authority. Just like men have a part of procreation. They hold, both have and participate in both powers. Both powers are divine. They come from God. Both are creative powers. How are the worlds created? By the power of the priesthood. How are the children created? By the power of procreation. Both are creative powers. And as was mentioned, both require the other gender to be used in their fullness. 
um, I thought about a lot, um, and, and I'd add to what she said, to have several priesthood callings, the man has to be married. I would encourage you to think about the significance of that. Why? Why? Um, so both require the other gender to be used in their fullness, as has been stated by the brethren. Um, I thought a lot about how to depict this graphically. I started here, male priesthood, female procreation. I liked the idea of circle because it showed fullness. And yet there were these two sides, that there's the power of procreation and there's a power of priesthood to preside. Incidentally, I'll add right now, just because we're running out of time, it struck me as I was having that day in the temple and thinking about marriage and seeing these two powers. I invite you the next time you go to the temple to watch for the power of procreation and the power of priesthood to watch when they are given, to watch how they are given, to ha watch how they interplay. They are in the temple. As I was sitting there thinking about these two powers, the twin powers of procreation and of priesthood, I realized that as we think about the Abrahamic covenant as taught in Genesis and in the book of Abraham, that, and elsewhere, that, that we always talk about the three Ps in like Seminary and Institute and, and in Gospel Teaching. We talk about that the, the, um, the Abrahamic Covenant had three promises. They all start with P. One is priesthood, one is posterity, and one is a place or a promised land. I thought about, okay, given that the place in the eternal sense as if that Abrahamic Covenant applies to us refers to the earth and its exalted state, then look at what's left. Priesthood and posterity, or rather presiding and procreation. Do you see how even the Abrahamic covenant is highlighting the fact that these two powers are what lead to exaltation? How did we define exaltation just a minute ago? We defined it as a fullness of God's power and the continuation of seed. Do you see the same two powers again? They're in the they're Abrahamic covenant. They're in the God's definition of exaltation as found in DNC 132. And they are imbibed in man and woman who are intended to bring them together in eternal marriage and to make them into one whole. So I started here. As I thought about it more, now do not, this could get me fired, this next slide. So don't wake out on me. I thought about this. Now, I don't really know what this means, or I didn't. I just, it came to my mind when I was thinking about this. Because of that idea that both have both pieces of both powers, and that both are required, both genders are required to exercise those powers in their fullness, that both have roles and responsibilities that are a piece of them. And, and so there is a little bit of kind of, you know, overlap, or it's not a, a straight line down the middle. Right? Do you see what I'm going with this? It's a, it's a stretch, but go with me. And so I started thinking about this. I'm like, is that a pagan symbol? I don't even know what that thing is. I just remember it. So I looked it up. Ying Yang. <laughs> don't tell President Bui. Um, in Chinese, just kidding, tell him. He listens to these. Hi, President Bui. Um, in Chinese philosophy, yin and yang describe how seemingly opposite, remember the definition of Ezra Kenecto? Opposite corresponding to meet suitable, seemingly opposite or contrary forces, which sometimes can feel like marriage, I am sure, may actually be complementary, interconnected, and interdependent in the natural world, how they may give rise to each other as they interrelate one to another. A many tangible dualities like dark, fire, and water are thought as physical manifestations of the duality symbolized by yin and yang in this Chinese tradition. Duality is found in many belief systems, but yin and yang are parts of a oneness. 
Yin and yang can be thought as a, of as complementary rather than opposing forces that interact to form a dynamic system in which the whole is greater than the assembled parts. I don't know if I've heard much better definitions, non-LDS definitions of marriage. Complementary rather than opposing forces that interact to form a dynamic system in which the whole is greater than the assembled parts. The yin and yang, skipping to the bottom, shows a balance between two opposites, corresponding, meet, suitable, with a portion of the opposite element in each section, that overlap. And thus we get to God's commandment that they shall be one flesh, that they shall cleave unto each other, that male and female will come together, and, as was, and they shall, as you see the picture change, they shall become one. Um, we see that the male priesthood preside, female procreation create, male, as was mentioned, gives spiritual life, women, physical life, male, baptism, rebirth, female, physical birth, blood, water, spirit, are all elements as taught in Moses 6 in baptism. Blood, water, and spirit are all elements of physical birth, rebirth, birth, male, female, priesthood, procreation. Um, I am out of time. Um, there are a number of other temple takeaways on marriage. I will read smatterings. Maybe just spark something next. You go to the temple. Adam identifies Eve as uh, Eve is identified as the mother of all living, highlighting her part, her role in the partnership and plan. Notice that in the gospel. God chooses to be named father as his primary role. And Abraham is called the father of the faithful in his role over that Abrahamic covenant. That Abrahamic covenant, incidentally, that highlights those powers of procreation and priesthood. Where is it given to you and me? In the sealing ordinance and not before. The promise of exaltation, which is that Abrahamic covenant in the ceiling ordinance and not before. Posterity is given as the reason for mortality and for marriage. Again, exaltation is inextricably tied up with the idea of family. Um, and the idea of sacrifice, that as we are sealed, we do so over an altar, being willing to sacrifice ourselves to create this one flesh, this oneness that does not pull against one against the other, but brings, rather brings the two together. The world tries to separate marriage, marriages to highlight the differences and to disvalue the powers given to the two, to procreation, um, to disvalue it in our, our worldly culture. Um, do not let them. Do not let anything disvalue this eternal uh, institution that is the definition of who God is. God commanded in Genesis 2, let Adam cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. In Abraham, he says that he created male and female and called their name Adam. He named them together. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, let us create them male and female, or in our image, male and female. I've always thought about, what does he mean? Is he referring to a heavenly mother? 
I want to add one, not interpretation, but rather just an application of that idea of being in him as image, male and female, and that is this. This diagram, of course, familiar now. Male, the idea of male and female, priest and procreation, which are actually, as we just saw in the prior slide, shared and come together and are one together. But it also applies to our Savior. The first time I, I thought about these two great powers and how they relate to the different genders, it struck me strongly to think about how they relate to the Son of God, that he, priesthood, is the great high priest, that he presides over all, that he gives spiritual life to us. He is the father of our covenants, and that through the atonement, which included blood, water, and spirit, if you look, that he gives us life. But, and so we, man is symbolized Christ, or man symbolizes Christ, but woman does as well. In her role of, of creator, he is the savior or the deliverer who bore our sins, who delivers us, who creates, who gives life through the resurrection, again, blood, water, and spirit in that atonement. Um, in closing, I, I hope that our purposes today of understanding the divinity of marriage, of man and woman, of their distinct roles, how they work together, how they are important, and how they relate to God and his plan has, has somewhat been, been evident. I hope that you understand, as you see here, women created in the image of not only God but of the Savior, that they're symbolized, um, symbolizing him, that you see the divinity of your roles. Um, I thought about you know, what could I say about having a strong marriage? Nothing. I have no advice to give you. I am like the blind leading the seeing in this same thing. All I can say is that if your marriage does not match the ideal marriage that you wish it to be today, I believe that the same promise applies to you that God extends to me, that as we do our best to live our covenants, to do everything that we can do, that all that the Father hath will be ours, even if we don't see it today. Uh, I loved, I taught this, a similar lesson to a group of students, and I loved um, one student's journal that he had to turn in as an assignment. He gave this whole exposition on the idea of marriage. and the end, he said this. He's like, after all, uh, kind of, maybe that's, this should have been, this was really long, so he says, perhaps this entry should have been a sentence long. Perhaps the question is more about finding and nurturing the type of love one would carry, wish to carry into the eternities. I loved that. Maybe marriage really isn't about all these ins and outs and do's and outs and technicalities, but perhaps the question is really more about becoming one and finding and creating the type of love that one would wish to, do, to live, carry into the eternities. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. I pray that we may make and turn to and live our covenants so they may be sealed by the Holy Spirit promise that we may value our roles as wives and mothers in the divine, divine, beautiful, saving role that that is, that we may become one with God and with our husbands, and that by doing so, we may live happily ever after. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.